You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us. You mind telling me your name? <laughs> yeah, sure. My name is Becky Harlan. Michael Kroger, recreational hockey player, lawyer, <laughs> Chicago, Illinois. My name is Vernon Draper. Jamel Winston. I'm Jay Dev. Gina Cristina Simo. Christian Glasset. Wait, actually, my yeah. name is William Hebert. All right, who are you? Who am I? That's a damn good question. <laughs> I am a friend of yours. I am a computer scientist from France. I'm a human being. I'm also a gambler. I'm your mother. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just everything that's good. Mixed with a little bang. I'm everything that's good. Mixed with some bang. And I'm Lizzie Peabody. This is Your Story Here, a podcast about humans and the common threads that bind us. I first started interviewing strangers after a couple of decades of being told not to talk to them. This show is about sharing some of the conversations that I've had. Now they're yours too. When I was little, my mom used to tell me stories to get me to fall asleep. I always asked for the same kind of story. A Bill and Rachel story. Here's my mom. It was the story you wanted to hear at, at, at nap time. I would help you go to sleep by telling you a Bill and Rachel story. And it, what happened really, as I remember, was that things that you were particularly afraid of would happen to Bill and Rachel. And you listened with great relish to the story and asked for more details. <laughs> like what kinds of things would happen? Well, the things that you were afraid of, I guess... Bee stings, broken arms or legs, dog bites, appendicitis for sure, bloody noses, cuts, measles, mumps, and chicken pox, definitely earaches, bug bites, pokes in the eye, snake bites, lacerations, sunburn, poison ivy. I don't think they had car accidents, but I do think they fell off bicycles, stomach aches, definitely stitches, falling off playground equipment, and um, and got you know got sick with fevers and things like and that. And they had to have shots. You were very afraid of shots. It could be that I started telling you those stories to desensitize you to going to the doctor, so that there was a narrative where. You went where somebody went to the doctor and then got better and was brave and all that stuff. And it ended up being a series of stories about non-fatal medical emergencies and conditions that happened to Bill and Rachel. (laughs) I don't really remember these stories. I was only three during the era of Bill and Rachel, but I've heard my mom talk about them a few times over the years and... Somehow I'm not that surprised by my morbid preschool self. I think when we hear our fears played out, they become concrete and somehow more manageable. Lately, I've been battling a sense of foreboding. This feeling deep down that something bad is about to happen. How can it be that I've been so lucky for so much of my life? Surely the cosmic pendulum is bound to swing back at some point. I just don't know when or where. In a way, I think I'm still telling myself Bill and Rachel stories. When I listen to people talk about their lives, I'm listening for echoes of my own fears. This episode is a little different. We'll hear from three different women, Angela, Jan, and Anne, but we'll hear from each of them more than once. I'm going to ask you just to say your name. 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Angela Karpiniak. All right. And who are you? Um, I am a 28-year-old female. I didn't feel like I had, like, an identity. Like, I kept being like, oh, I'm Angela, the occupational therapist. But I didn't want to just be, like, the occupational therapist. Like, there's so much to a person. Like, why do I use that? So then I saw a friend of mine's um, improv show. And I was like, oh, I should do this. Like, this would be fun. And so that's been a big part of my life the past two years. Um, And it's helped me so much. I'm an anxious person, but it's helped me, like, combat my anxiety and just feel more like DC is a home and that I've like feel more of a part of a community I guess per se so tell me more about your job so you said you thought of yourself as sort of like Angela the occupational therapist like what does that mean so um if let's say you got into a car accident you'd go to the emergency room and then be admitted into an acute hospital and they take care of your medical needs so then they're like okay Lizzie can you go home and function by yourself? Like, are you strong enough and able to do that? No, not really. Okay, so what's the next plan? And so I work at an inpatient rehab, which is a hospital facility that focuses on rehabilitation. So you come to us, you stay, we help take care of your medical needs, but we also provide you with three hours of therapy a day. I work with the same patients every day as they come, so we get assigned a patient and I keep them until they get discharged home or to another setting. You have this kind of rare window into a wide range of people who are dealing with a wide range of, you know, somewhat disastrous kind of situations, right? You see people not at their best Mm -hmm. every day. Has it given you any kind of insight into people? Or like the nature of humans in any way like do you see um trends? i definitely see a lot of trends with those signs of grieving and it's interesting because people can grieve anything i mean you can grieve like the loss of a limb you can grieve the loss of a loved one even though they're not gone the human spirit in general just always like surprises me <laughs> one time I had a gentleman who had a stroke, and it was one of my first stroke patients, and his biggest goal was to go to the bathroom. He just wanted to sit on a toilet, because he had been doing, like, bedpan and some other unpleasant measures, so we've been working for, like, weeks on trying to get him even to, like, transfer appropriately into a wheelchair, and a lot of times, as an OT, I realize what it means to sit on a toilet, because (laughs) a lot of people are like well if you can sit in a chair you can sit on a toilet not the case because a toilet doesn't have a back support toilets don't tend to have like armrests to put your arms like you actually need a good amount of stability to sit on a toilet so finally we try it one day I get him on the toilet and he's sitting up by himself and he goes to the bathroom and we both start like crying because (laughs) we're like so excited (laughs) <laughs> he got on the toilet. And it's so stupid to, like, be emotional about, like, people being able to get on the toilet. But he was so excited. He's like, Angela, I'm shitting on the toilet. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you are. And so it was, it's just funny because it, that's something that I don't think he ever would have been excited about <laughs> until now. But, yeah, people do surprise themselves. Like, it's not. Or I had one gentleman who... I told him that if he could put his shirt on by himself, I will 
get a tattoo. But when I said that, it was so funny to see like how that motivated him because he ended up getting a shirt on by himself, which I was flabbergasted by and like surprised and mortified because I was like, oh God, now I have to do this. Um, But I think it's interesting also to see like what actually motivates like a human being, like a toilet motivated that man to like start working on his balance, working on his core strength, or like this gentleman, like working on those movements to be able to put on his shirt just so he can tell his mom that I told him that I was going to get a tattoo. Like it's, they're silly things, but sometimes like small things that motivate people really help make some of those everyday tasks easier. My favorite patient's the tattoo guy. Um... (laughs) He was in a motocross accident, went to a rehab hospital in Georgia, and wasn't making any recovery. So he was in a coma? or he Yeah, was, kind of. Was, um, and then he wasn't making any, like, functional progress. So they were like, oh, we were going to send him to a nursing home. But his mom and his girlfriend was like, no, we're going to take care of him. So his mother purchased an apartment in Virginia, um, and his girlfriend would be there during the day. While mom worked, she would leave and go to work, and then mom would be with him at nighttime. And they solely took care of him. He wasn't talking. Um, I want to say 26. Um, He wasn't talking. No. And wasn't functionally doing anything. He was dependent for everything. And so somehow, one of his doctors was like, you know, let's try again and see what happens. So he got admitted to our hospital. Um, And he was my first, like, severe brain injury patient I had him for five months and um by the end he was able to like do some minimal walking with a rolling walker he was able to put a shirt on by himself he was able to help me get his pants on he was talking and he now him and his girlfriend are now married and had a baby and sent us pictures um, not too long ago. But it wasn't just, it was just really cool to see like how at one moment people have given up on him and that somebody saw like, oh, we want to try this one more time and like him actually getting better. And it was like one of the first patients that I felt I was able to passionately fight for. I try to fight for all my patients, but insurance kept trying to kick him out because he wasn't, making the functional progress so one thing about rehab is that you have to be able to make functional progress for people to for insurance companies to cover you to allow you to stay and so he was making good progress very slow but he was still needing a lot of help for things and they're like well if he's needing a lot of help like why are we even paying him to stay there So that's one of the reasons why I kept being like, I'll get a tattoo if you put your shirt on. Like, just put your shirt on. Because then I could tell the insurance company that you're putting your shirt on by yourself. And um, I fought so hard to make sure that he stayed. That's one of the reasons why he's, like, my favorite. He was also, like, a sassy 26-year-old. So it was just, (laughs) we ended up getting along pretty well once he was able to communicate a little bit more. Should I just give give you my first name? Yeah. Okay. I'm Jan. All right. So you were married for 28 years, you say? Yes, I was. <laughs> How long have you been single now? Goodness. Uh, maybe about 15 years or so. Right. Yep. <laughs> What's that like to be single after you've been married for most of your adult life? It's really a mixed bag. 
it's really a mixed bag. The last part of my marriage, I spent a certain amount of time crying in the closet. I was so upset. I felt like the walls were closing in on me, you know, like in uh, Star Wars, when they're in a thing and the walls are actually coming in. the trash compactor? Yes. Yeah, I felt like my life was just closing in on me. I finally split up. It was very difficult. Uh, Did he not want to split up? No, he didn't want to split up. And the girls were maybe 10 or 11 and 14. Oh, gosh. And uh, I was just, I was losing it. I felt like, I was so unhappy, I felt like my health could deteriorate. It was just going to eat me alive. For self-preservation, I needed to get out. And I actually think it's, I think that was true. You would wake up and it was like the first thing you, you would just remember that you were stuck. I mean, Every day I was trying all these different things to kind of put myself back together of who I was because whatever interactions the day before were so upsetting. Um, if we go on a family picnic and the girls were young, and I would do everything I could to make everything work. And yet, he would always find something that was a problem that should have been done differently, and some reason why we couldn't just relax and enjoy where we were. It was just like that all the time. Mm-hmm. He's the kind of person that, if he saw ants walk across the counter, would think, you know, that we were being, you know, terribly invaded. And I'd look at it and think, you know what? just happens. Sometimes ants march through their house, and I think sometimes it's too cold, and sometimes it's too hot, and sometimes it's too wet, and sometimes it's too dry. And, you know, you don't really want them going over your toothbrush, so you try to do what you can, but it just always seems like in two or three days, they just go away again. You don't need to bomb the house with pesticides or anything. But for him, it was like, it, that if we didn't see something, we're on the verge of catastrophe. You know, I'd go off and go in hiking groups and go out to meditate and stuff like that. But it was almost like it was a counterforce to feeling like I was coming apart and then sort of putting myself back together every day. There's a certain delightfulness about being alone. Mm. <laughs> and you don't have to negotiate any of this. I can, I can plan trips and go where I want to go. I can spend money the way I want to spend it. I can set up my life completely the way I want. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to be home for dinner if I don't want to. I don't have mm-hmm. to cook what something that's going to make somebody else happy. Yeah. Um, you know, these are, it's all very liberating. Mm. There's some good stuff. What about the not good stuff? Well, the, the not good stuff is spending too much time alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like I have to plan things to be with people. It doesn't happen automatically. I find I have to really extend myself and put myself out there a lot. And um, there's an effort in that. But on the other hand, there's an effort in constantly trying to get along with somebody and compromise and accommodate them. But if I look back, which would I rather have, being married to the husband I broke up with 15 years? There's no, it's not even close. Mm. You know, how much better off I feel like I am, even if I never meet anyone again. You know, really getting along in years here, and, you know, how likely is I'm going to meet and fall in love again? 
doesn't seem highly likely. I'm not giving up. That doesn't. Well, then it's diversify. Then it's just keep putting those feelers out in eight different directions all the time and getting this over here and this over here and this over here and mm-hmm. this one over here. Mm-hmm. Have you tried using like Tinder or Hinge or any of the dating apps that... Yes, yes, yes. Has, it's very discouraging. Uh, this, is what, so. this is what I think happens. Okay, I'm almost 70. I'm in very good shape. I hike a lot. You know, I'm not fat. I go to the gym. <laughs> I'm having a bad hair week, but usually my hair looks pretty nice. And, and I... <laughs> Well, your hair looks great to me. And, um, and I try to dress nicely, you know, not, not stupidly for a woman who's turning 70, but, nice, you know, nicely. I'm not wearing baggy jeans and, you know, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, I try to look nice. And you I think, very nice. And I think for my age, I actually look very nice. Now, I'm kind of wrinkly because I'm, you know, Northern European and not getting a facelift. But um, <laughs> this is what I've come to find is that when I see men on match that look about the same that I think for their age as I do for mine, I'm not good enough for them. They want somebody who looks 10 or 15 years younger than they are. So that I'm getting contacted by people that, you know, with big pot bellies and, you know, Santa Claus haircuts. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really unattractive people reach out to me. That's been discouraging. Mm. And then it's the possibility. So who runs a, a, a singles kind of group thing where they actually still meet in person told me that there are three times as many women in my age group looking for men as vice versa. And, um, and I said, well, <laughs> where, where are they? <laughs> What happened to them? And I said, are they already dead? Because, you, know, you know, women do, 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 do live longer. So, oh, dear. So I don't know what to tell you. It hasn't been encouraging, though. Ah. What am I afraid of? It's a great question. Um, I am afraid. I don't want to say like loneliness makes me afraid. It's more of I'm afraid of. Like I'm trying not to connect this to work. But I am afraid of acquiring some type of, like, disabling condition. Like, it does freak me out. Like, I used to be afraid of uh, being blind. Actually, that's probably, like, my biggest fear is to lose my eyesight. Um, I don't like being in a dark room. So anytime I'm in, like, a theater or something and they shut the lights down, I automatically know where the exit sign is because I know it's going to be lit up. And that's, like, a reaffirming, like, I can see. Um, so you know they're going to be the lights, so you like the eyes Yeah, which is like a silly thing, but um, losing my eyesight to me would be like one of my biggest fears. Like a disabling condition, but like losing my eyesight would freak me out. So my name is Anne with an E. Uh, my father wanted it, insisted it have an E, otherwise it was naked. Bard. 
Um, Thomas. This is my third stint in D.C. Oh. So I started off at George Washington University. And after three semesters, I had a 1.8 GPA <laughs> and was about to sign a, uh, a student loan. And I was like, oh, this is ridiculous. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know. I don't have the grades. Why didn't you like college? I felt very insecure. Mm. And I, it was such a culture shock, man, that, you know, you're, you're supposed to work hard. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, everybody is there at that age and everybody's trying to figure out who they are and everybody's jockeying for trying to feel that they're good enough to be there, good enough to be hanging out with these people, good enough to be popular, good enough to be attractive to the opposite gender, good enough. We're all like struggling with good enough. Um, and I concluded I wasn't good enough by the end of, cause I had such lousy grades and I was so confused. Mm -hmm. So, I used to go to the Watergate Bakery to assuage my anxiety and depression um, with mocha cake. Oh, they've got really good mocha cake. It's a really good bakery there. It's still there. So I was at the Watergate, and they had a, a drawing. It was the 19, for the 1976 Winter Olympics. And it was just a, the retail shops in the Watergate were having this contest to draw in the shoppers. And so I put my little name in, and I won. And so I won a week's worth of skiing, lifts, hotel, and attendance at one Olympic event in Innsbruck, Austria. Mm -hmm. And so that gave me a direction. Like, oh, I won this contest. I have no idea what I'm doing in school. Don't want to go further into debt. I'm going to go hitchhiking across Europe by myself because that's what we did in the 70s. And my brother had taken a gap year between high school and college and traveled around the year, world for a year and we were ardent feminists and so my family really couldn't tell me I couldn't do it mm. although you know as a as a person of greater wisdom now it's kind of like wow they were crazy let me go but anyway away I went and I I landed first and did the um the skiing and then I hitchhiked into Italy, all over Italy and France, and then into Spain. And then mm -hmm. I was in a car accident in Spain. And I woke up on the side of the road. And I tried to stretch. And I, there was this tremendous pain. And I couldn't feel my body from the chest down. I was in England last fall. And I had this weird accident where I hurt my knee falling in a bus because my seat flipped up and I landed on the floor and I wrenched my knee so much that I could just hobble into the hotel and there I was and I had three days left and I couldn't even walk hardly and that scared me the helpless feeling I had that I couldn't walk even though it only lasted for a few days that was scary because I realized that the way my life is operating now and the way I run around and it's a lot of dependence on the fact that my body is working as well as it does. Mm. And how's that, how would that all work out if I suddenly had something happen and I'm living alone and I can't go tooting around the way I'm doing? That kind of scared me. But that has to do with loneliness. Where did your parents live at the time? Where did you grow up? 
I grew up at that time. I grew up in New York State. Um, so you went back to New York when you returned from Spain? Yes. Were your parents hysterical or were they pretty stoic? Yeah, my parents are stoic and strong. What was What's interesting is is that how my, my mother was very devastated by this. And then that happened in April. And then in November, the house burned. <laughs> oh and so my dad stayed strong through my car accident, and then my mother stayed strong through the house problem. So, so daughter paralyzed, and then your house burns. Yeah. Wow. Whenever anything was going on, we kept saying, "Well, at least the house didn't burn down." <laughs> and then one day, it's like the house burned down. It's like, really? Are you kidding me? Oh my god. Really, you used that as your like worst case. We did. Scenario? That was like a family watch phrase. Yeah. Has working with rehab patients in this way has it like changed the way that you see the world at all? I guess. Well, give me your answer. Sorry, and then I'll explain my question. So a hundred percent. My job kind of puts in perspective how fast like something can change. It makes me feel lucky. Like, I find myself feeling more lucky in moments that are good. Like, anytime I'm having, like, a happy, good moment, I just think of, like, how lucky I am to have that good moment because it could be taken away, like, in a second. Yeah. So it has changed the way I live and the way I think a little bit. After you came home and you were living with your parents and not no longer going to college, I mean, didn't you have a lot of questions? things to figure out like a lot of questions to answer about okay how this is my new life how do I did it take you a long time to sort of make peace with the way that your life had changed you know of course um but what was very obvious to me is that everyone thought my life was over like all my friends my family everybody was really sad and depressed and even though they knew people with disabilities could drive a car or you know, go to school or whatever. It didn't. They didn't believe it till they did it. So it was really incumbent upon me to um, drive forward. Um, and the first thing I did, uh, well, the first thing I did was actually I took a class in anatomy and physiology because I, I just as a very practical step, it's like I I got to know how this body works because I have to take care of it now. And I really, I desperately wanted to go back to school. I felt like I was falling behind my peers. Mm. And I wanted to get on. And I knew where before I'd been an athlete and I was just all about my body. Mm-hmm. I didn't have much faith in my brain, but I had a lot of faith in my body. So I was just all about, I need to move forward. I need to move forward. And I got to go back to school because my brain was going to be my ticket to independence. I went to school that fall. Um, to the University of New Mexico. It was wheelchair accessible. Uh, my sister was living there. Mm. So there was family nearby. And I, and I, I could live in the dorms. Mm. So to me, it was all about, I gotta get an education. Went back to school and then went on, and then I was like, well, now what do I do? So I went on to law school, because mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't know what else to do. And I needed to make money. I needed to start a career at a certain level of income because I couldn't ride a bike or take the bus. Mm because none of the buses were accessible back then. And so I had to have a car, which meant I had to have car insurance. And I needed, for the most part, to be in a ground floor uh, apartment because, you know, fires, fires, elevators, the whole bit. Um, So 
that meant I had to make good enough money to be able to afford all of that. So being disabled is expensive. I, I, I think I'm, I've always felt I'm really okay. I'm not a female that's ever gone around feeling I'm not good enough. I think maybe things happen where I don't always get what I want, like the boyfriend that I think that I ought to have. But I don't think that's because I'm not good enough. I just think that's just the way it happened, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I think I'm afraid that I'll never have a man who really loves me the way I've always wanted to be loved, ever. Someone who just thinks I'm just wonderful in lots of different ways. So that's not the end of the world because there's just so many other things going on, you know, that are exciting and important. But that that makes me sad. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a real possibility. When you think about all the books that are read to us as children, they all have happy endings, you know? Yeah. Um, So why wouldn't we expect life to be cheery and happy and and these great little resolutions throughout and I think that you know what you learn as you grow older is things happen and sometimes there are things you want and sometimes there are things you don't want and you go on if you could do anything and you knew you wouldn't fail at it what would it be <laughs> I would own a flower shop Really? Yeah. Like, if I could do anything and, like, be successful, I would own a florist job. Why? I love flowers. So, I buy myself flowers every week. I just think that they're, like, the most beautiful things. Like, I know, like, there's that whole, like, environmental movement about, like, how fresh-cut flowers are bad and whatever. I just can't get behind it because I just love flowers. I used to get really bummed out when Valentine's Day and stuff would come around and, like, I wouldn't get flowers. And there was this weird like a sense of why do I have to wait for someone to buy me flowers? I can buy myself flowers. So whether they're like cheap Trader Joe's flowers or I get like the big bushels at farmer's markets, like I try to buy myself flowers like every week. I just love them. They make me so happy. Maybe like have like croissants in there so you can pick your flowers up and get a croissant. (laughs) Have some coffee. Take home some peonies. One of the things, not to like combine my job with, my dream job but one thing that I think that I'm really passionate about is after my patients leave the hospital a lot of times they're not a hundred percent like and I don't know if they'll ever be a hundred percent but now they have this like stigma almost with them like I had like one patient that was a dentist and he's never going to be able to be a dentist unfortunately like he's never going to recover to the point where he can be a dentist again but could he like do something else? And so I told my sister, who's a pastry chef, that I think it would be really cool to like start a shop or a bakery in which we employed people with newfound disabilities or existing disabilities or disabling conditions like to work. Cause I feel like the key to being happy is finding like meaningful or like productive occupations to help fulfill your day. And I just think that would be like cool. Because, I mean, that's really, like, where therapy should be is, like, in the community or, like, getting people to back to their everyday. I, because of my disability, I have been very hyper-focused on being independent 
because there's so much societal expectation that I am dependent um, and needy, which goes against the grain of my American cultural upbringing <laughs> and also my familial upbringing uh, where we were raised to be strong and tough and self-reliant. But any extreme position, like when I, by insisting on my independence, I make my life a lot harder than it has to be. So when people offer me kindness, I almost, I knee jerk, refuse it. I'm pushing up a hill in my wheelchair and someone says, can I help you? You know, that would really be nice. But I always say no because I, now that is changing as I get older. It was really important to me in my 20s and 30s and 40s, but also as society's attitudes about people with disability changes and just the sheer fact of age. You know, I, I, I'm going to push so many miles in these shoulders and at some point my shoulders are going to give out and when they do, so, so goes my, away my independence. So uh, I'm getting better about accepting help, though it's a really deeply ingrained habit. And we all have fears that are legitimate, I think, and serve a purpose, but... What do you do with those? You know, you know fears are, are just like ghosts. They don't really exist. They hover on our horizons, but they're not real. And if you walk through them, they, they disappear. Any kind of fear that I've ever anticipated, right? Like, oh, if this happens or if that happens, has never, ever come true the way that I thought it might, ever. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know being afraid of what could happen is a total, utter waste of my time. You can't ever know how life is going to unfold. You just can't. So being fearful is crazy. I think we've come to believe that if something doesn't last forever, or if something doesn't last very long, it was a failure. And maybe there's some hint of maybe it was sort of a mistake. Maybe you shouldn't have done that because that didn't work. I, I think that's baloney. I think it all, see, I think it all counts. Mm. If you had one wonderful date with someone and never saw them again, that counts. And it all goes into a basket so that when you're 95 years old, rocking on the front porch, all the good moments you ever had with anyone are all just the little puffballs you've dropped into the basket, and it all counts. Everything changes, everything constantly changes. So when life is good, it's like, oh yes, love this moment, appreciate this moment. Yes, something will, something will come, something. it for this episode. Because I know you're wondering, I'll tell you that Angela did get a tattoo. It's on her left shoulder, and it's of a dogwood tree because she loves flowers and her grandmother used to have dogwood trees in her backyard. Special thanks to Angela, to Ann Thomas, who is a storyteller in D.C., and you should keep an eye out for her one-woman show, No More Helen Keller Jokes. And of course, to Jan. 
who stayed in my Airbnb and tolerated me interviewing her after a long day of walking around the city. Your Story Here is produced and distributed by me, Lizzie Peabody, and by Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. You can find shows like this one and more by going to GoatRodeoDC.com or following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at GoatRodeoDC. Thanks, as always, to my eminently talented little brother for the original theme music, and of course, to all of you for listening. I'm Lizzie Peabody, and this is Your Story Here. Keep an ear out for us.